Welcome to Charla Cultural, a little chat about culture from Asterix Journal and City of Asylum. I'm Carla Lamb. And I'm Adriana I. Ramirez. Today, we're catching up with Cassandra Lopez. Cassandra Lopez is a Chicana, Cahuila, Luiseño, and Tongua writer raised in Southern California. A Canto Mundo fellow, Lopez is a founding editor of the literary journal As Us, a space for women of the world, and teaches at Northwest Indian College. We'll start with a poem by Lopez, and then Adriana and I will chat briefly before we play more from Lopez's virtual performance at City of Asylum from November 17th, 2020. Then we'll transition to an interview I just did with Lopez regarding Brother Bullet, the importance of place, and what we call ourselves. We'll talk about what we're reading and some thoughts for the road. Welcome. Carla. So tell me a little bit about Cassandra Lopez. Cassandra Lopez is a, a poet, as we just heard from your introduction. She's an incredible poet. She has a couple uh, chapbooks out and then a full length called Brother Bullet, which is an incredible book. It definitely pushed me forward in my own writing. Lots of like permission to write about identity, survival of colonization, as you'll hear in our interview. But Cassandra, we just mentioned, performed at the Latinx and Proud Reading Series back in November 2020. This was one of the first virtual Latinx and Proud events that we did, and it was as successful as the others, but but it also proved that there's a silver lining in virtual, in the virtual Agreed. platform. Agreed. Being yeah. able to connect with poets on the other side of the country and getting to hear them perform their poetry is phenomenal. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's... Let's go back in time to November 17th, 2020. Um, trigger warning for people, there is discussion of violence. House a bullet. I house the bang a bullet in my amygdala, in my tizzy brain now prone to hijack. Brother's brain housed a bullet for 14 hours. 14 hours of waiting room chairs in a caffeine-less hospital. 14 hours is a song lodged in throat, a soft isthmus where no food can pass. We are all less now, pieced together with lack. We must house him in our bodies, a clavicle scripted with initials, a marked arm or stomach, and almond-eyed children become evidence of a man's existence. Brother once housed a secret, and now I, the prick of survival's guilt. How's this question? Who did this to you? The police report says, someone tells me, someone else tells me, live this city as a question, a mark of tomorrow never guaranteed. Live in this city's muck, this edge of desert. What is below will rise, a laked underground, the gut of it, our soupy middle, because each house is built on a fault line, so close to the spine. Open my closet, open my suitcase, open our neighbor's house, open my childhood friend, open our relations, open the stranger, open the city, and you will find each year it grows full with more clothes printed with in memory and RIP. Do not avert your eyes when you shake the hand of the mother of brother's youngest child. She houses brother's face on her forehand. 
here, she declares a theft, an absence. This tattoo, this scarred skin, a wound, healing made visible. Bullet won't stop. It is in Cousin's computer. She needs more memory. There is always more to record, more slides to set to music, more Diana Ross singing about missing you. Brother friend houses bullet in a drink, in his knuckles deformed from a knight's punched fist. Where else can he house this wild? Can it live in a 30-day sobriety? Where can he rest or chorus of grief? Eldest nephew lives his grief in a soccer-limbed run, in a kit sphere. He learns this game, what it is to win and lose in Spanish and English. He learns that his first law after father death will turn him into a limped, limbed boy, his knees cutting into the green regulated grass. He learns we will need, he will need help to stand. Wow. Okay. That is a powerful poem. So, oof. Yum. what do you think about the refrain uh, of like some of the, like open my closet, open the neighbor's house. Open oh, my I heart. love yeah. repetition. I am yes. a repetition writer. I battle all the time with everyone that's ever edited me about repetition. Because I think it's amazing. It's musical. It's lyrical. I I love the way it draws emphasis to certain words, right? Open, open, mm. right? It kind of lends a rhythm. And it also like, oh, like, I would love to stage a performance of that poem, <laughs> you know, like with actors yeah. or, you know, somebody that's a little bit, um, more dramatic than the way that Cassandra's doing. I mean, Cassandra performs her poetry beautifully. That's not a critique. I was just saying, like, I see the possibilities because of the lyricism and the use of repetition. You know, I'm all about it. I know some people think it's too much or it's too stylistic, draws too much attention to the writerly voice. And I think those critiques are really fair. And there is a sort of sense of, because you have an imperative like that, like open this or open that or look here or look at that, mm. you know, it, it really forces you to kind of think of about yourself as the implied actor. Mm. Um, so this moment where audience is actor, I think is always a risk that you take in poetry, right? I although the imperative might be the safest way to do second person, mm -hmm. um, just because you're saying like, do this, do that, but you're not projecting onto people, you know? Um, I was actually recently working on an essay on voice for creative nonfiction. And I was talking about how in creative nonfiction writing, you know, using second person is a huge risk. I was reading something that said like you know you put on your hard hat and go out and face the hard and brittle Iowa cold as you head to your oh. construction site and I was like that's not me <laughs> <laughs> so I don't relate to that you know <laughs> it's a lot easier to empathize with you know an imagined person going through that sometimes than it is to kind of break that suspension of disbelief but I think in poetry mm. the rules are so much more lax I don't know but I personally really like that section of the poem is definitely so inviting and visceral mm. and just so I'm completely drawn to that part and drawn in to the work and then it has like a surprising pivot at the end, I believe like the line is like open the closet and find the clothes that say like rest in peace that say like in memory of. And I just thought that was like a beautiful leap 
on Cassandra's part, like as the author, just like, holy shit, that's so, and it's like visceral and tangible. So that's why, like, to me, like that specific moment in the poem, I'm, I'm just like, well, in that moment also, it it opens it up to the community, right? It's saying, you know, like in this entire place, there is a collective grief. Yes as well um and i think that's something that we don't always consider when we discuss grief right we think of grief as kind of private or as something that an an individual bears and when we think of collective grief we think about it usually in the face of like a national tragedy right Right. or you know even what's going on with the condominium in miami right Right. that's a moment of collective grief that we are feeling um whereas you know usually we think of individual grief as private and so you know kind of Mm -hmm. what what lopez cassandra lopez is doing here you know is that she's taking this privacy and she's opening it up to the audience Mm -hmm. and she's Mm -hmm. mentioning that like this bullet that has really become a character in a way in the poem and in the book actually as a whole um you know bullet takes on a certain identity yeah. and the way that bullet has impacted and created a collective grief and that final image is so brutal I, I almost wish she had like slowed down a little bit so we could really linger with it um you know mm-hmm. but of this this kid who has become limp and is just on his knees in a field and needs help to get back up and just how you know what you were just saying about it being tangible you know and how incredibly visual it is yeah you know, her poetry and in particular yeah I do agree with you like the bullet or bullet has taken on this like this character this trope in a way and I also really enjoy this is pivoting a little bit but how Cassandra uses these identifiers like father grief father death brother Mm -hmm. bullet brother friend to to point to perhaps like the people in the family the people in the community the people affected by this other character bullet and I was just thinking about that device or that choice to use that. What do you think? Like, for me, it kind of provides like a distance with perhaps like the speaker, like brother friend, instead of like naming, hmm. you know, the name of the brother friend. I don't know. So I would say it kind of maybe will do both, right? Mm. Um, it creates a distance from the, you know, intimacy of their real name, right? Of saying like Frankie or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it also feels more in some ways to a different construction of language, Mm-hmm. And so instead of saying, you know, the friend of his father's, yeah. right, which is feels very formal and very mm-hmm. constructed, father friend um, mm-hmm. lends itself, it kind of strips it of the formality and of the ornateness that, you know, orthography demands. Uh, but mm-hmm. it also at the same time, Time, right, allows you to understand the relationship immediately. Here is why this person is important. So they don't need a name. What matters is the role that they held in this life. Um, Right. And and in other ways, you know, I think it also harkens to, um, in some ways, a different grammar that is based more on indigenous language Mm, as well. That's, yes, 
so true. And so I think that there's a certain nod there to like the culture that this poem is engaging with, you know, whose stories are being told and keeping those stories in language that is familiar to that community. Um, This might be a leap, but that's sort of what jumped out at me um, from this. And, you know, specifically considering that the ties um, that, you know, Lopez has to the indigenous community um, in particular. Okay, well, let's let's listen to the rest of the performance um, and then to your interview. So exciting times. Um, This next one is a a poem that I wrote uh, a few years ago, but um, based on my family's and uh, and communities um, experience. But unfortunately, I I feel feel like it's still resonant. So I'm going to read it. A few notes about public grief. One, don't get angry. You should put up photos, take down photos, give away their clothes. No, save everything. Two, don't numb your pain with drink, smoke, or sex. Three, don't cry at work three years later because you hear a song that reminds you of them. Four, don't slap away the fingers of a coworker who tries to touch a locket of their ashes hanging around your neck. If you have to cry, do it politely or in a manly way or unobtrusively in a shower with the water running or an individually locked bathroom stall. Remember to nod your head yes when a stranger or family member tells you they are in a better place now. Nod your head to a name comments about God's plan. Five, don't scream or protest or grow small and silent. Don't get mad when your sitting can't afford a sketch artist or won't indict or keeps on pushing back the trial, rescheduling and rescheduling. So you wait and you wait and you wait, going back to court every six months for six years to have a chance to testify, a chance to say their name the same way you say love. If you come to the courthouse, try to look presentable, comb your hair back, Wear minimal makeup, wear a dress, but not too tight or bright. Wear a collared shirt and slacks, shave. Six, don't look too tattooed, don't look too uneducated, don't look too human, like a person who has made mistakes or has a drink at the end of a long day. Don't look like a person who laughs too loudly with a mouth of joy or someone whose body sobs history. Don't give them chance to say you are too black or too brown or too foreign. Seven, don't cry too much in public or courthouses because people will think that you just want attention or there is something wrong with you. Better get some help or medication. But if you never cry in public or at courthouses, that is just weird. Better get some help or more medication. Sit patiently, not looking too brown, too black, or too poor. Always remember, don't anger. Don't anger when police are quick to kill with hands or guns. Whatever works, don't anger when you realize whoever killed your loved one will never be prosecuted. Move on. Let them rest. But don't joke about death because... Death is no laughing manner. Don't talk too much about your memories of them because you are bringing everyone down. Eight, one final note. If the death involves some kind of a justice, injustice, don't talk about that either. If you do, you will sound too black or too brown, too angry. This next poem was written for my mother. It's called Show and Tell. Imagine 
mother as a young girl with a new English name she can wrap herself in when she leaves her crowded home and slides into a school desk. Her new name is squeezed tight, dried of extra vowels for her white classmates and teachers. This name is flattened down and scrubbed clean of history. She walks to the school on the sidewalkless street of her Southern California neighborhood that stretch into dust and tumbleweeds. There is not much here that stays clean. In first grade, she brings a mocajete, the family pestle and mortar, to show and tell. Feel how heavy it is. See how it takes up space in the kitchen in this world. It holds a volcanic weight with three stubby legs and concave center. Feel the lovely pitted cavities seasoned after years of use. There is life here, a song that flavors the tongue sharp. Here at the surface of earth, at this age, we are all as porous as this dark basalt. My mother child thinks of her own mother who roasts chiles on the flame and grinds camino seeds. She wants to show them how this is a thing of wonder and beauty, but doesn't have the words when her classmates complain about the scent of onion and cilantro, the scent of her home. Their faces grimace and frown. Is it confusion or repulsion? She wilts right there, knows she's losing something here, gaining some reckoning of difference she will carry with her always. Her pores soak in the shame, salting everything after. How small she can become here, she wonders, as she wants to wrap the mocajete in her arms, shielded and herself from their gaze. Is shame not some part of grief? Um, this is um, the last poem, and then I'm going to read uh, a little short excerpt. So this is poem for brother friend who contemplates suicide on a Saturday. Some days the bed is a heavy call, or maybe it is something else that widens the hole we search for to find the whole of us, the return of us. Your twin runs across my family's yards, and I'm reminded of your own brown legs running across the playground, your brother trailing you. This is long ago, back when my brother dug up bait worms with your grandfather, and at five years old, he told your aunt he was going to marry her. Before all the ruckus and recklessness of teens, before my brother came to be your brother as well. You probably never imagined your grandmother would sing Amazing Grace at your brother's coming home and sing it at brother's a year later. Then another year and she is singing it at my little grandpa's funeral. Her mouth opens into a song for cancer and a song for bullet, a song for backyards and funeral homes. I fear she'll be singing for you too soon. You are drunk singing and shouting on the block. I love you. I love you over and over until we can hear you over the music of motorcycle. 
It is so dark I can barely make you out because the street lights here never stay on like they should. Why is nothing like it should be except we are here? Is that enough? When it is not, I get drunk on loss too. It fills me up, my hand clutching regret until I'm empty again. My mouth clings to the rind of anger. I need that taste of sting to get me up and open my eyes in the morning after so much mourning. Every day I wake up and it is not a dream. They are all still dead. Is this why you curl up in mother's lap calling her mom and confess? Say you want to kill yourself. Say how, how do you go on? Say you are a disappointment and I'm all sink to the floor. No words, just witness. Earlier we tried, we were always trying to meet each other's eyes without falling, falling head into ocean. The salt burn on our open cuts turned canyon. I tried telling you I'm undone too. I know no justice, can't touch it the way I could, brother's rough hand. Justice doesn't look like any shape I know. I can't wear it in my ears or wrap it around my shoulders. When I'm lonely, I don't recognize any of the letters. I understand that call a bullet or something that takes you to the same place because every time I answer a door, I am ready to die. Every time I'm ready for bullet to take me whole. I wonder if brother saw the eyes of the one who pulled the trigger and knew what was coming next, or maybe he only saw the good of moonlight because the streetlights were off that night too. A teacher back home is shot and killed. And that night I dream fear, a gun in my face. It explodes and I wake because I can. Okay. Um, this, I've been mostly writing um, a memoir these days. And so this is a short piece from that. It's called uh, Shirok. Acne, I speak, um, and, it, and it goes like this. In high school, I could take escape. Mother told me stories how she almost made it to college, a college near, nearly 30 minutes away, but that 30 minutes is not an easy distance. Not when poverty and an abusive home can do a number on a person. Make them scared to jump, or maybe they jump too soon, or maybe their world closes in on them and their desires become singular. Mother wanted to leave her home at first chance and believed that an office job would suffice. Father desired a job where he'd keep his hands clean, free from oil and dirt. My own desires were also singular and limited. I wanted to leave San Bernardino, wanted to leave a place of swaggering, smooth-talking boys, chain-link fences, and dry brush. In those early adolescent years, I felt like I was seeing the world through a pinhole. I would try to rotate the pinhole, but could only see the same image. The only way I knew how to escape was to go to college. I didn't think much further beyond that. I threw myself into my schoolwork with both desperation and dedication. I applied to a high school outside my zone area that offered an international honors program. One day during my junior year, I woke up sick. My head felt like it was about to roll off my body. 
On that day, I was scheduled to take some important tests. It didn't occur to me to tell my parents or teachers about how ill I was. It was simple. I must do what must be done. Months later, one of my teachers gave me my scores. I didn't do well on most of my tests. When she told me my score for my Spanish tests, she tisked and shook her head in disappointment. She assumed, as others had, that Spanish was a language spoken in my home or somehow it had been genetically encoded in me because my last name. My escape was coming to an end like my mother's. My face flushed. I felt small and brown, but not the right kind of brown, not the kind that could be clearly labeled and categorized, not the type to meet anyone's expectations. I said nothing. It seemed both too personal and complicated to unravel my family history right there in a classroom. How did I explain the irony of my father's multi-tribal family speaking Spanish and my mother's Mexican family's uneasy relationship to the language because of disability and social pressure? It was a language of my paternal grandmother's laugh at her kitchen table while she played poker and drank beer, a language my little grandfather used to speak to the neighbors, but not his own children and grandchildren. It was a language that came out of his records. I didn't need to understand each word because I knew the songs were about having a great love, being heartbroken and leaving and desperately wanting someone to come back to you. How could I make her understand that the language felt both awkward and familiar? Back then, the words colonization and assimilation were just words in a dictionary, barren of meaning. I didn't know that like my parents who cultivated in our front yard a garden of succulents during droughts, that I can make meaning out of longing, create something beautiful out of remnants. These days, I have the same feeling in my mouth when I attempt to learn a few words of Tongva. I encourage my throat to warm to the language for my mouth to form. I say, Shirak Akne, so my Tongva ancestors will know I speak. Thank you. I know that in so November, you know, a couple months into the pandemic, into staying in, at home, um, I reached out to you to per, do a virtual performance um, to be part of the Latinx and Proud series, which City of Asylum has been a gracious host. Can, can you talk a little bit, just like jumping right in into reading some interviews you've given lately and a lot, I know that people ask you all the time about like grief and like this is what Brother Bullet is about and it's at the forefront and but it's also about community and place and home and identity and so obviously a lot of intersections perhaps can you talk a little bit about maybe we can start with like place yeah I think place is very centered in the book I wrote the book while I was kind of in between places. Mm, so a yes. lot of it was written like in New Mexico. And then mm. in some ways it, it's kind of a good thing or to be able to be not in the place you're writing about. Okay, yeah. But I was like back and forth between New Mexico and back home. And I, I, I finished the book up in Washington and I, and I feel like the center, the focus, the heart of it is in San Marino. During that time period, 
that I'm writing about, I was in a migratory <laughs> kind of place. Okay. So it kind yeah. of also has that aspect to it. And it's interesting you talk about being in a migratory state at the time of writing. In your bio, the word Chicana is is there. Can you talk a little bit about that choice to include the word Chicana in your bio? Yeah, I know it kind of now these days, it seems kind of like old school or old fashioned. But for me, I started using the term like in high school because I thought it was like the best term to also include my indigeneity. And, and especially because I come from, I'm from my mother's side of family who's had a long history in the U.S. Mm. or in what is now the U.S., so mm-hmm. it seemed like my 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 mother wouldn't use that term, but to me, it just seemed the best term for what my situation <laughs> was. And I would say that, I mean, growing up when I was like in high school and in um, in college, I also had a, felt a sort of, I don't know about conflict, but it, it was a, sort of a degree of pressure or with, with some of the ideas, like sort of old school ideas about Aslan and and the, and that, because there was an indigenous, I felt like there was an indigenous erasure. Um, mm, yeah. And so on one hand, I was like, well, this is like the best term, but some of the like philosophies I don't necessarily agree with. Or, and I, I think that that has definitely changed. I've seen a change in that and that acknowledgement in, in the philosophies and ideas. But as I said, like for myself, it just seemed like the best for my particular situation, a way to acknowledge the sort of like nationless in a way. Um, yeah. Like not Mexican. Yes, back home people would say Mexican. And, right. and, and and for other people who are newer, they would say, oh, they're Mexican, Mexican. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like, like, a, like, you know, intensifier, like, okay, though they're from Mexico, but everyone else is Mexican. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, conveying a certain like history or, mm-hmm. or a way, a way to convey um, that sort of in-betweenness, you know, I think it was yeah. like... And and it, and it also it doesn't as I said it incorporates that for me it incorporated that indigenous aspect that's a part of my life and it's so crazy that a one word in a bio is gonna do so much work just like word choice in a poem like you're really really having to yeah like really think really hard about like the history of the word what your readers are gonna think about it I struggled so much in my own bio to include I I definitely include the word Chicana and I'm always kind of each bio kind of changes right like I I've used Latinx before I've used no like no identity categories or labels before and like can my work just stand on its own without necessarily anyone connecting it to me or my picture or what I look like or how I express my identity right but then I can I finally concluded like you know what I want to honor and I also want to claim or like reclaim this word Chicana it's almost like coming back. It's a little bit of a renaissance because I've I've seen some other um, writers use it again. And I think I'm still learning about like my ancestors and like the indigenous history of like my my mother's lineage. But um, I also suffer from like imposter syndrome, you know, because like growing up in the U.S. and like, can I really claim Chicana? 
I finally had to be like, yes, I can claim it. I was reading more of your work and do a really good job of like navigating. So like not, not re-traumatizing your readers. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I wouldn't want to do that. I don't know if yeah. I'm always successful. I, I tell people, don't read my book in one city. Like I always <laughs> no. tell people that, but some people still do. They're like, oh no, I want to read it all. Because uh, uh, to me, I think it could be a little intense to do that because it didn't happen to me all at once. So sure. like, why would, so I, you know, I, when I ordered the book, I tried to kind of space out some of the more like intense poems, the more that are talking more about the like event or the sort of trauma mm -hmm. with other poems that are childhood memories or okay. poems that are a bit lighter and they're like talking about they may be sad because they're talking about like my niece and nephews or something like that but they're not they're not as like feel to the brim which which sure. trauma. I did try to like spread that out I was conscious of that and also because mm -hmm. I wanted to convey that like grief and trauma like it's not a linear sort of healing right right it it, it comes and goes so there, there was a couple of reasons for doing that in my memoir where I'm working on now too I think I'm also trying to as much as I'm writing about trauma and violence I'm also like looking for like moments of joy or moments of pleasure that I can like note and and kind of add to the experience that I'm writing about so yes and, and I and I put this in the in the book in Brother Bullet like I don't want to turn turn away from these hard or challenging things that have happened or I've witnessed but as I said I also I'm trying to note about the other the other parts right the things that I take pleasure in or or bring me joy or are just a bit light, a bit lighter. Um, yeah. And that's hard. That's also hard to write about as well, to yeah. convey that. So yeah, so that's, I think, you know, it's, I really admire writers who are like, can write humor. That's not my forte. Like I'm not, right. but I admire those who can um, do that. And that's definitely a skill. Um, and sometimes I will have like moments when I, I might also be surprised I'll read it to the audience and I'll get a laugh. And it was like, that wasn't my, like, oh my I mean, like, I think there is something like ridiculous in what I'm writing, but I, I just, it was like unexpected laugh. That will tell me something as well mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm, that maybe mm -hmm. I need to like bring that out a bit more. Mm -hmm. And that's the one thing that you can miss from doing like live readings is getting that feedback from the audience, you know, where they're, yeah. uh, where you might hear a laugh and you're like, oh, I didn't realize that could be funny. <laughs> yeah, there's a little, there's definitely a, like a sense of like levity and um, yeah, like relief and release and joy definitely comes through. Interesting how as a, as a writer, you, you mentioned like your style changing and you're moving from like a lyric narrative to and memoir to more of a prose. Are you finding that some form or like some topics fit certain poetic forms better? Yeah, I, so when I was in, um, I actually did my MFA in fiction, um, but mm -hmm. it was during that time where my brother passed away and I was just like not interested in prose, not interested mm -hmm. in literature. Because I think like the intense emotion, poetry mm -hmm. is, is a great vessel for that. Like it was mm -hmm. a way for me to express. And I actually hadn't written very much. Like I had only written two poems before then. <laughs> so <laughs> wow. I was new, very new to poetry. Um, and then as I kind of, you know, 
learned to write poetry by writing the book, I, um, I, I wanted to, you know, as I said, tackle larger topics and, and it has been a kind of like fallow poetry um, Mm -hmm. season for me in terms of writing poetry. But the other day, like I, or a couple of weeks ago, I felt like an urge to write poetry. And I think it was because it was something I was trying to figure out, like that was like emotionally charged in me. And so I was like, oh, let me like write this down. And so I think, you know, sometimes, yeah, there, there are certain things that just feel like naturally like this burst <laughs> that seems yeah. to really fit within a poem. For fiction, sometimes it's like something that I don't feel like I have a right to write a, write about in a personal way, like mm. something that happened to a family member or a topic like that. But fictionalized, I think it can like really work. Um, so yeah, I think it's just kind of finding the right match <laughs> for mm-hmm. it. Yeah. But I but you're also right. I'm kind of writing the same in each genre. I'm writing the same thing because I'm also working on some children's books and they are about the same things that I'm writing about in my prose. <laughs> what have you learned if you could like summarize some of that because it's, you've been writing you know about your experience for for quite some time like a couple chapbooks and then um your full collection and then it's like how you mentioned like a new memoir are, are you kind of past the point of like considering um how family and community is going to react no <laughs> i think it's important to i mean i don't think it should paralyze you but mm. i would worry more if it's like when I tell my students, like sometimes my students are like really worried about their grade or really, and it's always the students who like don't need to be, or like, I, I always am mm. like, if you're worried about it, I'm not worried because <laughs> you're uh. concerned. It's the students who are not worried at all that I'm worried about. <laughs> and so I kind of feel like it's something similar. If you're thinking, if you're considering, and not that, you know, yeah, you could make a mistake. That's possible. Mm-hmm. But if yeah. you are like considering it, then I think you're on the right track um, okay. in terms. And I like over time, I and and I would say, luckily, I have I feel like I have a supportive mm-hmm. family and, you know, community. But there are sometimes I get a little pushback. And I so I have to think, is this critique valid? Mm-hmm. Right. Or is okay. it com- coming from a, a place where. Like I, I received uh, a critique, <laughs> um, an, uh, a family member told my mom, like, you should tell her, stop writing poetry about oh. that thing. <laughs> oh, <laughs> and my it because it was in the sexual nature. Right. And yeah. And, and so I had to think, OK, well, is there a valid criticism here? Okay. But when I came down to it, I think it was more like coming from a place of shame and like trying to kind of stamp down on my humanity. And, and, yeah, and yeah. but it's also kind of understandable in a sort of like coming from Catholic roots, right? Yep. Yep. That's, that's <laughs> what basically colonization is where it was coming from. Right. And my, my mother didn't care. She was like, whatever, but, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I took a moment to think about it. Is this, is this a valid critique? And I was like, no, this is not a valid critique, but I, and so I think it's good to kind of think through because there's things that I don't, or I write about in a limited way. I do limit like what I write about my um, niece and nephews. I mentioned in my work that I'm doing, my brother did not ask to be written about, right? So I'm conscious wow. of 
thing. So I think it's good to, to be conscious of that. And, but also look at those critiques, analyze those critiques of, of where, where it's coming from, because there's times that, yes, there could be a misstep. You could be misstepping and that's important to acknowledge. And, you know, you want to maybe try not to make that misstep, but there, as I said, there's other times where it's just like, no, they're just wanting to silence you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, yeah, you said it right there, like the, the erasure, the silencing, the colonization. Uh, you mentioned like writing about your nieces and nephews. And and I'm wondering, like, are they maybe the inspiration behind some of the children's books that you're, um, you're writing? Yeah, and I think that's a great way to like kind of go about it because I was like, well, what what would I want them to have access yes. to? And now that they're growing Ooh. up, they're, they're, they're older now, but still mm. I think about them as like, you know, an ideal reader. So like I'm mm. working on a, um, uh, a children's book that it's about low writers, right? Because mm. that's something that was important in my, or is important in my family and something I grew up with and kind of like low writer culture, car culture, it's very mm. uh, Southern California thing, but I mean, other yeah. places, but it's very much a part. And, and that's again, where I can express the joy, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there can be negative representations. Mm. And so this mm-hmm. is a way to counter that where sometimes people think, well, it doesn't seem very family friendly or it doesn't seem, you know, or, or whatever. They may have their own ideas. That's kind of part of where I was coming from it. Looking to explore that, you know, in for, for children. Um, and yeah. but it's also a part, something that brings me joy. So it's like, oh, this is a, this is a, a, a thing that I can write about that's a little bit lighter topic, um, but, you know, has very much has meaning for me oh my gosh yeah what do you kind of envision future readers are are gonna maybe this is too heavy of a question but like they're gonna have access to your work and they're gonna take away whatever they're gonna take away from it you know but is is that exciting to you like this kind of unknown yeah and um So I, I was able to work with the author, David Murrah, and he was talking about how you don't have to like write for the like most racist, misogynistic, et cetera, mm. right? Like you, you can think about your, your, who you want to write for. And I definitely think I'm writing for mm-hmm. like my, I'm writing for my community, my family, but mm-hmm. even through, through like, um, through the poetry collection, one thing that I've found very like, like grateful for, and like it's it was in like a nice surprise is like all the connections that mm-hmm. I made from other people who um, have had sil- similar experiences or some experience mm-hmm. with either grief, like death or gun violence and mm-hmm. being able to have a little bit of um, connection with them. and. And so I, I think of it as sort of like a kinship kind of thing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, where I've been able, even though like, um, like I met someone who's uh, experienced like uh, a mass shooting, right. Mm-hmm. And they really connected mm-hmm. to my work or someone else who, and, and so even though that person's experience was different than mine, they were able to find some connection in my work. And that makes me feel like, um, like I, it, it feels like the work I'm glad to have done the work if they can experience, you know, have that to, to refer to. Um, So 
you know, I kind of see that in the future is sort of like continuing to open up and make a wider connection with people who may have some kind of experience that they can relate to from what I'm talking about, you know, and it might not be, there not, may not even be from my same ethnicity or, or anything like that, you know, like, but there's something about it that they connect to. I've read parts of my memoir where I'm talking about basically a feeling like a kind of diaspora living, mm-hmm. living in a sort of diaspora. You know, I've had people who come up and say, oh, you know, I, I really connected to that part that you're writing about, even though their experiences are, are totally different or, you know, different. So I think that's like the, be- the really great thing about literature is you can make those connections. And like when I teach, I teach literature, right? And so sometimes I see my students, you know, minds working sometimes when, I, when they're like, oh, like they're put, starting putting together things in the world. Like I taught, I taught there, there by Tommy Orange. And you could kind of like Mm. see my students like, and this was all online. So I'm just reading their responses, but (laughs) I I could feel like I see their brains working (laughs) to make all these connections and like, and it changing their way. They think about people in the world and our history. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, like that's, that that's something that I like as it's I'm writing and it's difficult like trying to try to think about that as well you know like that you can make these connections or you can make a difference or you know that kind of thing absolutely yeah so yeah thank you so much for your time and um for for your your work yeah so good to see you again (laughs) thank you of course Okay, Carla, as usual, I want to kick things off by asking you a question. There's a line that you said in your interview where you said, I like how this wasn't just about grief and how it was about community as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet earlier in the show, we were talking sort of about collective grief. And so I kind of wanted you to maybe unpack a little bit what you meant by that. Yeah. So, I mean, even in a, in a poem, I would say that's like very straightforward and perhaps like accessible language. There are many layers of what Cassandra is, I think, alluding to and trying to express. Right. So she talks a lot about like her personal experience with, with grief and with like personal trauma, but also like expanding that, like we don't like humans in a community. I, I, I maybe I'm projecting here into off the page, but I'm thinking that this poems or the poem expands beyond like the individual and the personal and like the more per, the, the personal is the universal, you know? So like people are going to relate her personal experience can help heal a community. Mm-hmm. So I think that's possibly like why it resonated because like, even though I'm, and I'm speaking obviously from a personal experience, like writing about family and like personal things that happened to my life as an individual, I don't exist in a bubble. So like when I well, write about- Well, have you ever been in proximity to gun violence? Does this um, bullet yeah. resonate with you as a member of a community? Yeah, I have been in a very close call, <laughs> I guess you could you could say, you know, and my personal experience with gun violence was traumatizing, of course, in the healing process, 
there's like anger and then there's there's a lot of emotions in, involved right and then there's consequently I was like moved to action and like why does this happen in my on my street on my community in my community in my neighborhood right so like I was actually really phased of like the reaction of the larger community and family saying like oh it happens all the time and like mm. it really honestly that's the problem. Like we're immune and we're conditioned and like the violence. There was a shooting in front of your house, right? Yeah. And the bullets literally hit your building. A person like very close to me said, this happens in every neighborhood, in every city. And I was so mad and so distraught that like, it really shouldn't happen to, to any, on any street, in any neighborhood, in any community. So like, I was very sad and like very yeah. angry. That's a yeah, sad exactly. way of looking at the world that is so and negative like, and so, um, yeah, and it's cynical so like, in a way, right? Like it's it's avoiding having to be an actor for change. I do believe that through this art form, through poetry, through Cassandra's work, the work of mo- moving someone to action and like moving someone emotionally and like as a reader like I'm not there when the experiences that the poem is talking about but viscerally and I can relate you know so that's what Cassandra and I were talking about is just like her it might be her experience but people can connect of course and it allows for a certain type of healing and the recognition Right. I mean, we talk about representation a lot on the show in terms of culture or in terms of, you know, seeing somebody with your skin color. But I think there's also something about the shock of recognition. Right. I mean, I was reading um, a few weeks ago, I mentioned this anthology I was reading by Joy Harjo of Native American poetry. And Cassandra has a poem in there. And there was just a line that I, I got choked up suddenly. Right. But it's also because my brother passed away. And so for me, like hearing lines about brother death, you know, it's going to hit me very differently than it hits somebody else. Right. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. you who are somebody who's been in proximity to bullets, I mean, literally outside of your living room, right. Like, uh, (laughs) you know, like there's a moment where the shock of recognition Mm-hmm. right has to act to do something here right whether that's make you confront your own grief or your own shock yeah. or your own trauma or you know your lack of recognition elsewhere or um anything but like seeing something about yourself in a work of art can yeah. absolutely promote that that moment of shock impact. yeah and i and i appreciate like the the uh the phrase shock of recognition and Cassandra mentioned that too in the interview talking about like someone even that maybe experienced um a mass shooting or another form of violence it's just like really honestly the proximity and like violence is a broad a broad umbrella term and violence can be subtle it could be psychological it could be really you know spiritual it could be a lot of different things so yeah i mean so many people have found healing through mm-hmm. words and through the importance of seeing yourself uh yeah i remember i reviewed this book once by sandra cisneros and you know i didn't particularly like the book but i recognized that it was a book for people that needed to talk about grief a certain way 
you know, so like the way I engage with my grief is much to my family's chagrin, right? Like by writing about it and discussing it and putting out there and, you know, understanding that this is a huge trauma that shaped my life and the void of my life of like not having somebody there that should have been there. But for other people, you kind of need to kind of talk around it and through it, you know? And so C's Nettles wrote this book about a missing cat. And I just remember as I was reviewing it being like, okay, like this wasn't a book for me, but this is a book for someone. And I think that that's really important. You know, that the right someone find this book because it will hopefully give them an avenue to have that shock of recognition or, mm-hmm. you know, to get that, un, like, you know, that undrowning feeling where you can finally cry something out that you didn't know you'd been carrying for so long. Yeah. Uh, I find like breakup music has this similar mm. effect. You know, like when you know, you're going through a breakup and you start listening to No Children by the Mountain Goats at full volume. <laughs> I, I think that's a moment and there's catharsis in that. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's also, I think, catharsis in finding that recognition in other forms of art. Poetry that deals with grief and poetry that deals with like the heartaches of assimilation and, Mm -hmm. um, you know, memoirs that are dealing with language and the complexities of understanding where you belong based on the language you speak resonates a lot with someone like me who also grew up multicultural in this country. So I think we can find you know, the universal and the highly specific for a reason, because at its core, it's about feeling and empathy. I also thought it was really interesting the way that she thought of Chicano as being classed as more indigenous than Mexican, right? Even though Mexican is traditionally like a hybrid people. You know, right. we're, we're very proud of our indigenousness, right, <laughs> in Mexico. And so, you know, the Azteca is very much seen as an image of cultural pride. Mm-hmm. And yet Latino does not denote indigeneity. And yet Chicano, in some ways, gets us back there, right, right. to this place of indigeneity again. So, yeah. you know, previously we had talked about Chicano in terms of class, but we hadn't really discussed it in terms of its indigenous roots. And so I thought it was really interesting that, you know, Cassandra brought that up. I haven't really come across any other poets or authors using that identifier in their bio. And I've constantly struggled with putting it in and taking it out of like my website, my bio, like okay, maybe not a lot of people know what Chicano or Chicana mean. And like, if you look it up in the dictionary, it's like of Mexican descent. And I was like, okay, I am of Mexican descent. Right. But then there's like the labor movement. So that's just like a constant identity battle. Like that. Of course, I, because, that you I know, speaking back to community, right. identifying as exactly. Chicano places you in a community. Right. And puts you in conversation with other Chicano poets. So it's both crucial in terms of building community to have sort of groups and to have definitions and to have taxonomies. But it is also really difficult because in some ways it forces your hand and it forces you to say you are something when more and more we are kind of a little bit more heterogeneous and we're a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, do you say you're Chicana and white? You know, do you say like how how much of yourself do you have to offer in a bio? Right. To what? To like impress somebody or to even like to put to put your place in like a or like contextualize yourself in a time 
place or and, and right like am I gonna put like I'm a white presenting Chicana like maybe not and like bios have to be 50 words or less you know right so um <laughs> no I think I think sometimes you just have to let the work speak for itself yeah but in other times it's important to know where you belong I mean just thinking again about this like anthology of Native American poetry of you know Native Nations poetry right you have yeah. to know and be connected to and have a sense of your tribe right in order to participate in a work like that mm-hmm Right. And right. so it's really interesting because so much of it, because of Mesti Sahir, are disconnected from our tribal origins. Mm-hmm. So unless you get a very specific DNA test, you don't necessarily know. Like as a Latino, you might know you're 30% indigenous or whatever, but you don't know exactly who or what or how. It's all educated right. guessing. Um yeah. which is a really different and, approach, right? <laughs> so right. so who and knows? Just, yeah. 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 It's really tough. Like we, we have to create taxonomies in order to understand ourselves, but the deeper you go into any taxonomy, the more meaningless it becomes. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that, but also categorization, I think helps the human brain like organize, mm. you know, too. So no, my three-year-old so is for sure proof of that. We are such like primitive beings and like reptile brains that we just, need categories but I don't want to I don't want to just like rest on that notion that like okay we just need categories to like be comfortable with ourselves you know as humans but yeah I do I I agree with like what Cassandra is saying and ultimately just representation and like bringing forward like indigenous stories experiences poetics the arts bringing that forward and maybe it's not like trying to you know like to the to the pop culture or to to like the foreground of anything it's just like it's just I think like finding the canon right or like finding the place or like finding well and also it's preservation it's an act of preservation as well and so you know that matters I I, you know, this is such a split fence. I think it, I, I feel I could be on either side of this argument, depending on the yeah. scenario. And so it kind of depends on who's trying to use what, who's trying to co-opt, who's trying to appropriate, mm, who's, uh-huh. who's trying to also define and make sense of and understand and place and find identity. Yeah. And, oh, I don't but, know. Okay, this, it brings to mind, like, maybe one day we won't need to have conversations like this because, you know, like no one has ever challenged me on the, on how I choose to identify myself necessarily. Right. So it's a very, it's a very individual choice, but we also talk about not wanting to be tokenized and like being invited to, to the Latinx, you know, reading series or being invited to the panel where we're like, women of color but I love like I love being with family and people that have had the same cultural experience I mean that's the thing like I don't want to get to a place where we don't have categories I just want to get to a place where those categories don't imply power Ooh, right. so like I can be Chicanx if I want to be and that's how I identify and that's how I place myself in the landscape but I don't Mm -hmm. want to lose power for that identification or gain power with that identification Mm. I just, I want yeah. it to serve a certain way. Like, I don't want it to be, to be a person of color to mean that I am 
necessarily a person that has experienced depression, but I do want to be able to celebrate my culture with my people and my friends. Yes. So like, I don't know, this is, we're gonna have to unpack this further. Okay. All right. All right. And you know what, actually this works really well um, to transition to what I'm reading. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'm actually, what are you reading? <laughs> in addition to many children's books about whether or not you are a unicorn or a narwhal, um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I read Chica Chica Boom Boom every night, just so you know. Sometimes in English, sometimes in Spanish. Um, Love it. My son has pages of it memorized and insists on reciting them himself, but insists that I read the rest of the book. So it's uh, it's kind of amazing. Um, but um, I am actually reading this book called An Insomniac Slumber Party with Marilyn Monroe. Wow. Okay. I just saw that somewhere. And it is I, po- I, yeah. poems by Heidi Seaborn. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. It's got a certain energy to it. Um, mm. It's the kind of thing where I read the poem and I imagine somebody reading it to me with well, like a white t-shirt where the sleeves are rolled up, even though they're already really, really short sleeves. Um, and there's somehow like a cigarette pack in there, probably Marlboro Reds. I'm just saying this is exactly what I felt like. Like I'm not, pro- you know, proponent of any of those things, but it very much gave me like James Dean cigarette dangling from the mouth feels um, yeah. in all the best ways. So that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that's me. How about you? What are you reading? Uh, currently, I'm reading um, uh, so a book by Shole Wolpe. Um, it's she translated an Iranian poet, Furo Farakzad, and I'm so sorry if I messed up the pronunciation. But I got to meet um, Shole Wolpe through working at City of Asylum. Um, incredible performer, translator. So it's translations of Furo. Farakzad's work and uh, Faro was she was an activist and had like an ultimately like untimely death I believe it's the first translation of its kind okay. as in like her work had never been like translated for an English-speaking audience before okay so sin the selected poems of Fora Farouk Zad edited and translated by Shole Wolpe uh it apparently won um a fancy endowment Persian translation prize so this looks great I'm definitely gonna check this out and add it to my list of stuff yeah thanks Carla that's a good one of course yeah and it has like a lot of like feminist you know and body and like sensual and like spiritual and like yeah love it you had me at sensual and spiritual (laughs) that sounds amazing all right and uh, what's for the road what do we got city of asylum is teaming up with an another Latinx and proud installment. So I, there's not too much information out there yet, but keep an eye out. Okay. Um, so the next installment of the Latinx and proud series is in August, 2021. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Cool. Well, on my front for the road, um, Asterix is going to be launching a new issue in a couple of weeks. So we're really excited. It's the best of hot metal branch. Um, so a collection Ooh. of about, 
about 13 years worth of stuff um, from a journal that comes out of the University of Pittsburgh. And so we teamed with them to put that together and it's showcasing a lot of the work by writers of color. uh, And it's just got some really neat stuff in there. So that'll be up on the Asterix website at the end of July. Yeah, amazing. It's nonstop. You know, like there's always more work to be done, dude. There's always more work to be done. And that's that's one of the best things about this. Well, for those of you joining us for the first time, please scope us out on social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. We're a little bad at updating it, but we'll figure it out. Um, <laughs> we do respond to messages, though. So please get in touch. Um, you can usually find us at Charla Cultural. That's C-H-A-R-L-A, cultural, except, you know. <laughs> pronounced sexier cultural <laughs> me encanta City of Asylum builds a just community by protecting and celebrating creative free expression Asterix is a transnational feminist literary arts journal co-founded by Angie Cruz and Adriana E. Ramirez committed to social justice and translation placing women of color at the center of the conversation. Charla Cultural is hosted by Carla Lamb and Adriana E. Ramirez. Voice of Goddess is Alexis Jabour. Editorial support by Clarissa Aimee. Production design and brand management by Little Owl Creative. Our theme song is Colombia Folk by Luis Alfonso. And thank you as always to our sponsors, Asterix Journal and City of Asylum.